Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. I'm so glad you could join me. Today, I'm sharing the tale of the 1934 death of a man in Columbiana County. It remains as controversial now as the day it happened. His restless spirit, distraught over his concealed execution, is rumored to haunt the mundane field where he died. Year after year, ghost hunters travel to the spot next to the Ohio historical marker that documents his demise. This 30-year-old bank robber from Oklahoma, loathed by law enforcement officials across the nation, had earned the admiration of a citizenry impoverished in the Great Depression. With no jobs left to be had, many ordinary, working-class folks found themselves hungry day after day, without a roof above their heads. All this, while an entire class of bank owners went right on with their business, foreclosing on mortgages and pocketing what remained of the blood, sweat, and tears of the American dream. Out of this misery and hopelessness rose the figure of a man that represented strength, resolve, and the audacity to create his own fortune. But before you become too enamored, let's remember that this man was a criminal by all measures. He's believed to have killed 10 men in total, mostly law enforcement officers, who died doing their jobs and nothing more. This outlaw, a common bank thief, should have faded into the annals of history as just another young man born into poverty and short on scruples. Yet today, his name and reputation are synonymous with the daring nature and a kind of renegade brand. He scored bounties in bank heist after bank heist, and true to fashion, he boasted about how it just came naturally to him. He was thrilled when local banks complained that their insurance rates doubled due to his frequent raids. He was over the moon when local newspapers took to calling him the Robin Hood of Crooks and Hills. He agreed with the characterization, saying, I have robbed no one but moneyed men. This narrative was certainly true of his early bank robberies, most of which occurred in his home state of Oklahoma. Using a submachine gun and a bulletproof vest, he'd waltz into small-town Oklahoma banks, usually alone, and introduce himself, by name, to customers and staff alike. After loading up on cash, he'd ask to see where the mortgage documents and other promissory notes were stored. He'd then destroy or steal them, freeing townspeople of any record of what they owed the institution. This so ingratiated himself to locals that he had no difficulty finding families more than happy to shelter him. Rarely was his familiar face turned away at the doorstep of a family who'd fallen on hard times. Usually, he was given a hot meal and a safe place to rest before moving on to the next town. He'd rarely leave before palming a large, freshly stolen stack of bills into their hands before heading out. I'm talking about Charles Pretty Boy Floyd and his controversial death in East Liverpool, Ohio. Although a native Oklahoman, Floyd's reputation in Ohio was well known long before his unfortunate demise in the state. 
He'd robbed several banks here, while known to us under an alias, Frank Mitchell. Only in hindsight would we come to see him for who he truly was, Charles Pretty Boy Floyd. These Ohio encounters are stories worth telling. Come, hear these stories. In early 1930, Toledo's police department had developed somewhat of an unspoken truce with local bandits. Crime was relatively low within the city's limits. However, this arrangement was unknown to transient criminals moving through town. One such group of them included a young man that went by the name of Frank Mitchell. The alias was necessary to keep Floyd's rap sheet from catching up with him, should he be captured. On February 5th, 1930, he and a small handful of other outlaws entered the Farmers and Merchants Bank in Sylvania, submachine guns at the ready. They made off with the loot with only one small hitch. Several onlookers managed to record their license plate as they fled. A month later in Akron, on March 8th, the outlaw's car was involved in a minor traffic accident. When Akron police officer Harlan Maines arrived on the scene. The driver of the car, a Mr. Burt Walker, promptly shot and killed him. Further investigation of the tragic killing resulted in the police's discovery of the gang's hideout at 731 Lodi Street. There, they discovered an arsenal of firearms, including machine guns, nitroglycerin, and rubber gloves. They also discovered a Studebaker from which a section of glass in the rear window had been removed to allow an opening for the muzzle of a machine gun. The car was later confirmed to have been stolen from Toledo. Frank Mitchell was believed by Akron PD to be a leader of the group. It wasn't until the license plate from the car matched the account of the Sylvania robbery that Toledo police sent a pair of officers to Akron. These lawmen would bring Floyd and another outlaw back with them for further questioning on the Sylvania robbery. Eyewitnesses would later put Floyd at the scene. With evidence mounting against him, Floyd, still known to Ohioans as Frank Mitchell, had no real choice but to plead guilty to the Sylvania bank robbery. He was sentenced to 12 years in the Ohio Penitentiary. Floyd was boarded on a train set for Columbus to begin his sentence. And in a scene that feels written for a movie, he asked to use the lavatory inside the rail car. While inside, he managed to unlock his cuffs and then forced the window open. He leapt through it as the train sped down the tracks. Incredibly, he managed to flee without injury. Floyd, or Mitchell, as he was yet known, wasn't seen in Ohio again until April 6, 1931, when he and fellow bank robber Billy the Killer Miller robbed a bank in White House. Shortly after, Floyd and Miller showed up in Bowling Green. Local merchants had spotted them and reported their whereabouts to police chief Carl Gallagher. He'd kept them under surveillance for a couple of weeks while devising a plan for apprehension. Finally, After the criminals exited a clothing store on Main Street, Chief Gallagher and Officer Ralph Kastner trailed them to a remote location. This was the opportunity to seize them without risking harm to the public. 
both outlaws pulled out their pistols and fired the first shots on seeing the lawman. When the shooting was over, Billy the Killer Miller was dead, and Officer Kastner was injured. He would die from his wounds seven days later. Floyd, however, escaped unharmed. He'd made it to the car in the melee and sped off. It was his uncanny skill, fleeing arrest and detention. It would become as well known to him as his handsome face. While Floyd continued robbing banks across the Midwest, even under assumed names, his position as a folk hero of all things only grew. Americans across the country developed a complicated relationship with Charles Arthur Floyd as he rose through the ranks of most wanted lists everywhere. To federal and local law enforcement officials, he'd become a brash and conceited villain, eventually identified as public enemy number one. Yet for many common folk, he continued to represent something much more complex, the belief that any one of us, with just enough self-confidence and impudence, could create our own fortune. Perhaps none better encapsulated Floyd's complex character than Woody Guthrie of folk music fame. He penned a song titled Pretty Boy Floyd, which included the lyrics. But many a starving farmer, the same old story told, how the outlaw paid their mortgage and saved their little homes. Others tell you about a stranger that come to beg a meal. Underneath his napkin left a $1,000 bill. Floyd inspired the kind of rare admiration reserved for Mavericks. This kind of character has been extolled for ages. Think of Jesse James, Billy the Kid, and countless other renegades who have larger-than-life reputations in American folklore. Perhaps that's why Pretty Boy Floyd's death in a nondescript cornfield in rural eastern Ohio led thousands of mourners to come see his remains. Hordes of bereaved strangers descended on the small town of East Liverpool and amassed outside the local funeral home, where his corpse was being prepared. All the while, old biddies and serious men alike whispered rumors about just what led to his death on that crisp autumn afternoon. So many believed he would go on eluding capture forever. So many were brokenhearted on learning they'd killed him. The following account is a sample of what locals themselves were hearing. It's derived mainly from the front page of the East Liverpool Review, published October 23, 1934, one day after Floyd fell in a barrage of bullets in the field outside a widow's farmhouse. Just one other note of caution. News reports of that day, especially of sensational stories, were rife with inconsistencies. In fact, different articles on the same front page held conflicting details as to what actually occurred. I'm presenting one version of the events as they were told, so you get a sense for what it must have felt like to hear the rumors just as they were beginning to spread. Two days before his death, on October 20, 1934, Floyd and his accomplice, Adam Rochetti, robbed a bank in Tiltonsville, Ohio, a tiny village about 40 miles down the Ohio River from East Liverpool. The town's fire engine responded to the bank alarm, 
on account of the village not having a police force. As the engine approached, Floyd and Rachetti hopped on the sideboard, pointed a gun at the driver, and demanded that he run them out of town. Just beyond the limits, the two bandits then rendezvoused with an unnamed man waiting in a parked car. Remember this detail. You'll hear more about it later in this episode. Later that afternoon, John Foltz, the police chief of Wellsville, a small town near East Liverpool, received a call from a resident. With the help of the unnamed local, the two bandits were driven 35 miles north and were spotted resting in the woods. They were seen wrapped in blankets on a hillside, lying next to their guns. Chief Foltz and two other officers set out immediately to investigate. On approaching the pair, Rachetti drew his pistol and fired at the lawman. Floyd sprang up and ran up the hill. He, too, turned back to fire his weapon as he ran. Rachetti was soon overwhelmed and rose his hands in surrender. However, the lawman kept exchanging fire with Floyd. One of the officers received a direct hit to his shoulder that would later end his career. Despite their best efforts, Floyd disappeared further and further into the thickening forest. The sheriff had no idea of the true identities of these notorious criminals until they'd brought Rachetti back for questioning. His attempts to disguise both he and Floyd's identities fell apart on the chief's learning that the duo were confirmed to have robbed the bank in Tiltonsville. While Rachetti was being interrogated, Floyd had managed to flag down a Model T driven by George McMullen of East Liverpool. When it ran out of fuel, he flagged down a second car driven by Wellsville florist James Baum. Floyd directed him to stay on the back roads in hopes of evading cops who were surely swarming the area looking for him. Despite these efforts, this suspicious vehicle, making evasive maneuvers, was soon spotted and assumed to be Floyd. There are varying accounts as to exactly what happened next, but when the whole thing was over, the poor florist had gotten shot in the leg by a cop's bullet, and our outlaw had fled once again into the shelter of the forest. Pretty Boy Floyd was on the lamb in the wilds of Columbiana County. Arthur Kunkel, an East Liverpool farmer, spotted a bedraggled man hiding behind feedstocks in his cornfield the day after Floyd last fled police. His instinct told him the man was dangerous. He could sense his frenzied state from the safety of his house and decided not to confront him. Only two hours later, he'd seen the same man on his neighbor's property, that of farmer Robert Robinson. At this, he picked up the phone to dial Constable Elmer Birch and reported the suspicious man. The constable agreed to investigate, but in the meantime, Conkle headed over to his neighbor's farm. By the time he'd arrived, Floyd had already moved on. Robinson confirmed that the suspicious man had indeed been Pretty Boy Floyd and that he and his daughter prepared a quick lunch for him before he took off. Robinson was one of those many citizens who sympathized with the outlaw. Floyd had claimed he'd gone without food for days. 
He'd stayed off all traveled roads and was sticking to fields and forests. Shocked, Conkle advised Robinson to tell all he knew to the constable, who would arrive any minute. Conkle waited for the lawman to arrive to assure that the whole story was communicated to him. Arthur Conkle had no way of knowing that Floyd's next hideout would stay very close to home indeed. His niece by marriage, a widow by the name of Mrs. Ellen Conkle, owned a farm on Spruceville Road. By the next day, October 22, 1934, Floyd approached the front door of her modest clapboard farmhouse and knocked. I am lost and hungry, were the words that greeted her when she opened the door to a young disheveled man covered in Spanish needles from traipsing through the woods. She felt no apprehension on allowing him in. It was something in his demeanor that brought a sense of calm. Although he only asked for meat and bread, she decided to cook him a proper meal of pork chops, potatoes, and coffee. After finishing, he proclaimed it had been a meal fit for a king as he slid a dollar bill across the table toward her. In today's dollars, that amount to about 20 bucks. He then asked for directions on getting to Youngstown and how he might get there. Mrs. Conkle suggested that her brother could drive him in his car once he returned from working in the fields. Floyd thought that a fine idea and said he would go out and wait in the car, which was parked behind the corn crib. With that, he thanked her once more and walked out the front door. The widow's brother, Stuart Dyke, would later report that he discovered Floyd sitting at the wheel of his car, attempting to rig the ignition to get it started. Instead of being enraged at the apparent theft, Dyke simply asked what he was doing. Floyd calmly explained his need to get to Youngstown. Again, Something of the trusting way in which he spoke inspired Dyke to offer to drive him as far as Clarkson. As the engine roared to life and they pulled forward, two vehicles full of law enforcement officers came rolling down the driveway. On seeing them, Floyd demanded Dyke back up behind the corn crib. He exclaimed that they were after him as he drew an automatic revolver from his waistband. Dyke opened his car door and demanded Floyd get out, which he did. Now this might seem like an odd place to pause, just as the story reaches its climax. But before we move forward, I've got a special treat for you. I promise to finish this episode with the rest of the story, and the mystery which surrounds it. But before that, you'll get to hear from a native of Columbiana County a man with such a passion for local folklore that he wrote the book on it. Literally. Michael Kishbooker, author of Legends and Lore of Little Beaver Creek, shares a passion for legendary tales of the region. His book offers a masterful telling of both well-known and more obscure local legends. It can be easily found on Amazon and elsewhere. His mention of the pretty boy Floyd story is what cued me into the tale in the first place. Kishbooker, a retired field-grade officer in the U.S. Air Force, now a civilian intelligence analyst, offers a comprehensive look into the interplay between fact and fiction of these enduring tales. Yet even more than this, his own family's ties to this history 
offers a unique glimpse into how such a story as this shapes a people. I can't believe my good fortune in connecting with him, and I'm so glad to be able to share his wisdom with you. Come, hear his story. Well, I grew up in kind of the border area there between Ohio and Pennsylvania, um, between Columbiana County, Ohio, um, for a time, and Beaver County, Pennsylvania. Um, a lot of my family's from Beaver County, um, but I went to school in the East Palestine school district there in Columbiana County. So I grew up right along the Little Beaver Creek, horseback riding and having fun uh, with, with the swimming holes and things like that. And of course, we always had our uh, summertime campouts with the family, and that's where we start to hear the various fun ghost stories. Kind of right. sparked the interest in writing the book, is just remembering those and trying to figure out if there was any actual history to them or if it was just all, you know, fabrication. So it was really kind of started organically for you, right, in your childhood? Yeah. yeah. I think we all have those hometown ghost stories and legends. Um, right. So on that note, were there stories about Pretty Boy Floyd and that you were told, you remember being told as a child that were passed around? Yeah, we have some particular stories that are family stories. There could be some actual history with a distant relative that might have been involved in um, Pretty Boy's last bank robbery. And, you know, this was passed down to us kids several times over, but um, nobody really knows if it's if there's any truth to it. Yeah. So in that sense, um, you know, it has been a story that's been mentioned uh, among family members, and it was widely known among the locals, of course, that he died there uh, in the right. field where the marker is. The story always comes about as that it, it seems silly how the national narrative, the national news made it seem like that Floyd was just happened to be uh, in the area because of a car accident mm -hmm. um, when he was killed. But if you do some research, he had been there for a few days and there was a bank robbery uh, and a shootout that's not really talked about much in Wellsville. That doesn't show up in the national news. Yeah, that's one of the um, of many inconsistencies that I've noticed uh, in my research. The overall summaries that just say, yeah, he was passing through Ohio on his way back to Oklahoma um, it conflicts with a, a lot of documentation that shows that you're right, that he was in the area uh, yeah. and ha had been purposely doing some of his bank heists during that time. Yeah. Uh, so he had been there for a few days. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. yeah it, w it wasn't just the, uh, the the story that he, you know, slid off the road and hit a telephone pole and was just hiding out in the woods. <laughs> I think he, he had, uh, one of his partners was arrested in Wellsville after that shootout there. And and then there was a third gentleman that um, was never captured. So that's the that's where the family legend comes from. I see. So the family legend is maybe that third person had some connection. Yes. yes. Uh -huh. So if you, read, if you read the old news clippings, um, there was definitely three men involved with the bank heist and then three men involved in the shootout. But Rochetti got arrested and Floyd got killed, and there's no mention of whatever happened to the third person. Interesting. Hmm. But Floyd was familiar with the area. I mean, there's um, the locals will say that he was a he was a rum runner in the 20s, 
there. That's probably where he met um, Willis Billy the Killer Miller, who was from East Liverpool a while. Uh huh. And uh, that guy was well. I'm sure you've done the research, but he was a real uh, psychopath. He killed his own brother yeah. over a woman when he was 19. There in East yeah. Liverpool. Yeah. A bit sadistic, and a lot of his reputation there for sure. Right. Yeah, and actually, from what I can find, Floyd never actually killed anyone until he was in a shootout with Miller and trying to save Miller, actually, um, uh, in, the, in the shootout where Miller got killed over in the other side of Ohio. Yeah. Was that the, the shootout in Bowling Green that I'm yes. thinking of? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that all fits what I've been learning. Mm-hmm. They were they were friends. Um, matter of fact, when I think Floyd was killed... Several months later, after Miller, he still had Miller's lucky silver dollar on him. Must have had some significance for him. Yeah, um, but just to show ties to the, to that area. I mean, and that's where mm-hmm. that's where Miller was from. Yeah, so you're thinking that maybe there was some rum running uh, earlier in the 20s in the area. Maybe that's oh why yeah, there absolutely know. was. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you know, I haven't done a whole lot of research into into Floyd, but. I know the local stories that he had um, had done rum running up and down the uh, Ohio River, learning the the trade from folks like Miller and his brother, who was Alabama Joe. He was a real bootlegger before he got killed by his brother. Um, and they they ran their operations out there out of East Liverpool. Out of a there was a really seedy part of it called Hell's Half Acre. Um, yeah, I've come across that too. So that was kind of like an enclave of a lot of the criminal elements. There. Right. So, and and the stories are that you could easily get away from local police because it was right at the point of the boundary between Ohio, Pennsylvania, and if you cross the river into West Virginia. So right. um, back then, of course, you know the local cops couldn't chase you, and the federal agents were still. The FBI wasn't as powerful as it is today, so that was a good spot to to uh, lay lay low and then <laughs> take off if you needed to, I guess. Yeah, you could easily uh, cross the state borders and then you'd be out of jurisdiction range, mm-hmm. I guess. That, exactly. that makes sense. So maybe that's part of the reason, uh, you know, that Floyd had familiarity with the area uh, as to why he would have returned and maybe had some support from other folks that were still around. Um, yeah, so and, and if you re- research the um, that last bank robbery um, and the shootout that occurred the day after in Wellsville, he was staying with somebody. Um, the, the the police got a tip that he was he was staying at a residence, and when they uh, approached it, that's when that gun fight broke out. He he wasn't just randomly <laughs> you know hanging out in Wellsville. I'm sure he had friends. And then there are stories that. Um, the uh, local sheriff showed off Ricchetti to the police and then regretted it later because there were posses forming and threatening them with um, driving by with men, you know, cars full of men with guns. He was afraid they were going to break him out, and that's why um, they called the FBI to come get him. <laughs> oh, this is interesting. Um, so there were posses yeah. forming to free Ricchetti? Yes, that's the, that's the stories, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that there was at least one car drove by firing guns in the air, and uh, that night that is when Melvin Purvis flew in to take custody of him. I see. 
So there's lots of indications that they had a great deal of support among the locals. Um, at least, at least some support. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there were many others who, you know, didn't want anything to do with these things. Um, yeah. Uh, but that's part of the allure too that I've been learning about Floyd just generally is that he inspired a kind of um, admiration uh, from a lot of like, especially more downtrodden folks um, during the Depression who kind of saw him as this figure and somebody that could create his own fortune. Um, yeah, and he had that Robin Hood mystique. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure if there's any truth to it, but the, you know, the stories are that he would rob a bank and then purposely look for mortgages of you know, yeah. farms during the, you know, this was during the Depression, and he would, you know, tear them up or burn them or take them. So these farmers, uh, you know, that were being foreclosed on, he, he thought maybe that would, that would help them out. I've seen lots of accounts of that, um, and it's even been immortalized in, like, the Woody Guthrie song and, um, you know, where he would basically free a lot of local people of their uh, mortgages and other promissory notes, um, which would, you know, ingratiate him to the locals and probably support his cause to have, you know, somebody to shelter him. Um, right. It's, it's an it's an intriguing concept, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> It sure is, and and I'm sure the press romanticized it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we should we should gloss over that this was a killer, a very oh, yeah. person. Yeah. Oh. oh yeah. That's that's the danger too. Is you want to kind of see him as this sympathetic figure, um, and I think he was his character is way more complex than probably a lot of us know. But that, that's really the, my only history of it is the the family lore. I mean, there's mm-hmm. some artifacts, you know. Of, bullet and I think it was a pearl handled pistol at one time that I've, I've never seen but I've heard people talk about it um, but yeah this distant relative that uh, somehow was either involved or you know a family member made it up just to <laughs> to draw some attention well it must be somewhat compelling I mean you have the object there you can see it a pearl handled uh, pistol of the era I can yeah. see where that would would deepen the, the legend there um, Absolutely, and, and, and in fact, I always just assumed it was a completely made-up story from a crazy uncle or something until we started emailing each other and I um, <laughs> saw the newspaper clippings about this third person that never was charged. Oh, wow. Yeah, one of those discovery moments that you just kind of... Right. You have the goosebumps on the back of your neck. I up. know, I got kind of excited and called my mom and I said, this actually could have happened since she's like, yeah, I've been telling you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's, what, that's what's so neat about folklore like this is when you make that connection and it just makes it so much more real. Um, right. So and what I've gathered from the spot itself where he was killed, it, it seems to be like this really nondescript field. Um, mm-hmm. Is that yeah. the way that you would describe it? Yeah, it's part of the uh, Beaver Creek State Park now, uh-huh. and um, it's used for, or at least it was, I don't think it probably is anymore, but it was used for um, radio-controlled airplane enthusiasts, like would have a large area where they wouldn't be flying into trees or telephone poles and things like that. Right. But it's still there, and there's, a, there's an Ohio State historic marker there, which is, I always find interesting or ironic, because every time I go past it, um, it's full of bullet holes. 
uh, yeah, very uh, on the nose, I guess, for that to be the case. <laughs> uh, I'm assuming somebody decided to do that just to add a little extra uh, genuineness to the whole thing. Um, and I have come across a few claims that supposedly his ghost has been spotted or that people can uh, hear, you know, what do they call them, EVPs. Was that at all part of the legend that you remember hearing? Um, I'm sure that I've heard. I mean, there's so many ghost stories in Beaver Creek State Park. I, I swear there's more ghosts in that park than there are buildings. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know why, but that that place seems to be just chock full of, of ghost stories. His is more infamous. Most folks just know that he died there. But I have I have heard folks say that you could... You know, to see him on the day of his death is when you're supposed to go. I, I don't ghost hunt. I don't, I don't really believe in that kind of thing. But um, uh-huh. I also am not a total uh, skeptic. So Sure. Right. It's just such a compelling story with, uh, you know, competing motives and um, part of why I think it, it lives on even yet today. You know, most people know the name Pretty Boy Floyd. Um, right. Even if they don't know all the details, it's something that's uh, outlived him, his general yeah. reputation. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of. I always find it interesting that he's lumped into the, the gangster uh, genre with like you know Al Capone and all these true gangsters. He was more of a bandit, more of a farm boy that grew up to be a bank robber because of the, uh, the situation he got put in. I guess. But the yeah. Great depression. And, I thought that too. A lot of times he's given that label of a gangster, but he really didn't belong to a gang. Um, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, from what I've read, and I'm not a pretty boy Floyd expert, but from what I've read, he didn't really, uh, he wasn't part of organized crime at all, other than, you know, the friends that he would, or acquaintances he would uh, occasionally rob banks with. Yeah, yeah, and I would guess that maybe he would bristle against that idea. Um, you know, that there was probably part of him that uh, enjoyed the freedom of, if you can call it that, um, autonomy, maybe, of kind of operating on his own. And some of this might be my own assumptions here, too. But, um, well, yeah, and that, that's how I see him. I, it was a, a, a little more modern version of Jesse James or something like that. Yeah. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons that he holds a place in our... Um, collective unconscious, so to speak, um, you know, that we see him as a kind of archetype, um, whether that's truly earned by him or not, that's what we project onto him, maybe. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting story, but and it's it still um, is very odd to me that I'm sure it had a lot to do with the press and the times being during the Great Depression, that these killers... And outlaws became so uh, uh, popular. I, I assume it had this had something to do with the way they were portrayed in the media at the time. I think that's a really fair point. You know, they was kind of the, built into a character uh, that you could root for on some level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I was also reading about when he was killed there in East Liverpool that they'd had thousands of people descend on the town to view his body. Uh, it was this, you know, huge outpouring of grief um, from 
strangers uh, that just really reflected the the amount of I guess love that he inspired or um, at least admiration. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure you are aware that he's, I think they have a there's still a death mask there um, that's part of a uh, on display that folks can go see. Um, yeah. Now, have you seen the death mask? Yourself? I have not. No, oh. it's not in person. What I read is that it's it's nailed to the wall above the uh, washer and dryer at the Sturgis house, which is the uh, bed and breakfast, which was used to be the funeral home where he was displayed. Right. <laughs> um, That's a weird thing to have there, right? I know. And they, you can actually see the picture where they posted it um, there on their website. Uh, and it, back then, you know, there was different attitudes, I guess. You know, there were you could see pictures of his autopsy. They had video of it as well. Um, yeah, it's just, I don't know if it was just because he was so famous that they felt that they could do that, even though his mother requested specifically they not do that. Um, yeah. Different times. Very different times. Very different times indeed. Usually, we avoid the messy details of death, even when it happens to those we think deserve it. Such was not the case for Pretty Boy Floyd. His death was a spectacle. It was proclaimed on front pages of newspapers across the country. His corpse was photographed, filmed, and immortalized in the making of a death mask, as we mentioned. Thousands came to view his body before it was sent on for burial in Oklahoma. So many wanted to say goodbye to this man, this thief, this killer. So many held sympathy, even respect for this outlaw, who represents the embodiment of something fundamental in American culture, our worship of rugged individualism, and our reverence for tales of rags to riches, of rising above all odds. Earned or not, Pretty Boy Floyd came to represent so much in the hearts of Americans down on their luck. There's one piece of the puzzle yet to be revealed here, the details of his death. First, let's take a listen to how the official story, as recounted by the lawmen who were there, was told in the days following. What you'll hear next is a reading of an excerpt of a front-page article of the East Liverpool Review the day after his death. It was the official account gleaned from lawmen who confronted Floyd that day. Come. Hear this story. We alighted from the cars and cautiously approached the field. When within hearing distance, we shouted, Hold up your hands. The outlaw kept pacing back and forth behind the crib as the federal agents and our policemen with three machine guns, two rifles, two sawed-off shotguns, and two thirty-eight caliber revolvers moved in. There were no prearranged plans of action. Every man knew his job. We were out there to get public enemy number one, and we were prepared for a fight. Floyd, apparently wanting to get to a woods down near Beaver Creek, darted from behind the barricade as we approached. We ordered him to halt. He failed to obey the command, and we all fired at once. We believe he was struck by the first volley, but Floyd continued to run. We repeated the command to halt, but again, it was ignored. We fired a second volley, 
and Floyd fell in the field. We closed in. One look told us Floyd was dying. Who the hell tipped you off? Floyd asked. Where's Eddie? He next inquired. You got me twice. He admitted his identity as Mr. Purvis questioned him, saying, I'm Floyd. We carried him from the field to the road, and when we reached the highway, I said, He is dead. We put the body in the federal officer's car. Two of the Department of Justice agents went to Clarkson, where by telephone they reported to Edgar Hoover, their chief, in Washington. Floyd had a forty-five automatic revolver with the release open in one hand, while stuck in his belt was another automatic revolver. He made no attempt to use either gun and apparently was trying to hide rather than fight it out with us. We had been cruising along the East Liverpool-Youngstown Highway and side roads for more than an hour before we sighted Floyd. We had not received a tip as to his whereabouts. We were called by Purvis, who asked us to join the federal agents who previously were cruising in the district. After we brought the body to East Liverpool, a doctor was called and pronounced him dead. The only mark on Floyd's body, other than the bullet wounds, was a bullet scar on his right leg. Floyd's fingers were sandpapered, an old trick to make fingerprints difficult. Handcuffs were clamped on Floyd's wrists before he was carried from the field to the highway. In Floyd's clothes, we found $122, a small amount of change, and a watch. This is the story that remained the official word on Floyd's death for nearly 45 years. Then, on September 24, 1979, a new account was revealed. Retired East Liverpool Police Chief Chester Smith was then well into his 80s. He'd been among the group of local officers who'd witnessed Floyd's death. By 1979, in fact, he was the last man yet alive who could tell the tale. Not wanting to take the truth to his grave, Chief Smith agreed to share what he knew in a Time magazine article. No longer fearing denials from the FBI, he felt free to call out the lead agent, Melvin Purvis, for what he deemed criminal actions. Come, hear his story, as printed in Time magazine. On October 22, 1934, G-man Melvin Purvis cornered bank robber Charles Pretty Boy Floyd at a farmhouse near East Liverpool, Ohio. When Floyd, armed with two 45 caliber pistols, fled across a stubbled cornfield toward the woods, Purvis and his men shot him to death. It was one of the most celebrated exploits of the G-men, forerunners of the present-day FBI agents and enhanced Purvis's reputation as one of the country's ablest crime fighters. This story of Floyd's death stood unchallenged for almost 45 years. Last week, however, retired East Liverpool police captain Chester C. Smith, now 84, came forward with a far different account of Floyd's death. One of six officers who accompanied Purvis on that day Smith was the first to spot Floyd trying to escape. Said Smith, I knew Purvis couldn't hit him, so I dropped him with two shots from my 32 Winchester rifle. 
Stunned, but not seriously wounded, Floyd sat up and was immediately disarmed by Smith. Then, said Smith, Purvis ran up and ordered, Back away from that man. I want to talk to him. Pretty Boy glared and cursed, at which point, said Smith, Purvis turned to G-Man Herman Hollis and said, Fire into him. Hollis obeyed, said Smith, killing Floyd with a burst from a Tommy gun. Was there a cover-up? Sure was, said Smith, because they didn't want it to get out that he'd been killed in that way. Smith, who was promoted to captain following Floyd's killing, said he decided it was proper to set the record straight now, because of the seven men involved, only he remains alive, and the truth can no longer hurt anyone. So what do you believe? Was Pretty Boy Floyd's death a consequence of his decision to flee from authorities? Did it result from the risk he took in choosing to run yet again? Or in truth, did he die a disarmed and wounded man, executed by men, blind with rage and revenge for the lawmen he killed? Did he inspire in them a lurch into lawlessness, a willingness to take fate into their own hands, Is this not the kind of influence he held on so many during his short life? Did his criminal acts not provoke a kind of admiration rarely seen in civilized society? Perhaps with the right justification, be that poverty, oppression, economic depression, or, in these lawmen's case, sheer revenge, we're all susceptible to forces that push us beyond the society's limits. What will you do when tested? How will your morals hold up? Perhaps that's what keeps Floyd's restless spirit roaming. Perhaps he suffers guilt wrought of the innocent ones he killed. Several accounts of his life offer evidence that he regretted those caught up in his line of fire. On the other hand, perhaps his restive soul longs for justice for his unlawful execution. Such justice would have been the kind his own victims never received. Whatever the truth of the matter, those who know are long dead. Whether their ghosts still wrestle with this unfinished business is a question only folklore can address. This concludes today's episode on the demise of Pretty Boy Floyd. I hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please rate, review, and subscribe to Ohio Folklore on your chosen podcast platform. Writing a review helps people find the show, and so it is massively appreciated. You can find Ohio Folklore on Facebook and at ohiofolklore.com. And as always, keep wondering.